Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Kevin Lunn, the CTO at Authenticate, and we discuss using previous experience to set yourself up for success, the differences between inward and outward facing CTOs, and how being passionate about the business first will help the product deliver more value. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Kevin. Good morning, Joe. How you doing, my friend? All right. How are you? Now you're East Coast, aren't you? I should have said good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm excited today. It's a good day. I get to talk to Kevin. So I'm very happy about this. So we just record and hang out and talk. So is that cool with you? That is cool with me. Okay. So I was doing some research, right, on you. And I got to understand what is computational psycholinguistics? What is that? That is uh, essentially doing computational models of what's going on in the brain as it processes language. So it is not linguistics. Uh, linguistics is the actual study of language. This is how the brain processes language and using computers to build models to help maybe better understand how that, how that happens. That makes sense? Yeah. What did you learn? Like, what was the result of studying that for a couple of years? Oh, well, there's a whole, the whole story of what's, what was the result of, of this particular uh, bit of education, these specific psycholinguistics. What we, were, what we were studying specifically is how, does, how do people acquire meaning? How do you learn what things mean? It's that unsupervised acquisition of semantics is what we were at. So we built systems that would just freeform accept text freeform language input and sort of learn the meanings of words from that. Wow. That's pretty brilliant. Well, uh, I didn't say how well it worked. <laughs> how well did it work? It worked pretty well. Um, are you familiar with Usenet? Yeah. Yeah. So typically when people do these kinds of things, they would use dictionaries or encyclopedias, very formal speech. But instead of that, we pulled Usenet text, hundreds of millions of words of Usenet text, which is actually people interacting as they really interact. We got all kinds of interesting results. Aside from, you know, saying this model can or cannot acquire semantics, we got such different results than you do out of a, a dictionary because we got real world speech. And of course, a lot of it I can't even discuss here in a public forum because it's, it's foul because yes. that's how people are. But um, instead of learning, you know, what's a table and a chair, it would come up with things like, oh, Lino is the same thing as, as Letterman. So ah. uh, we get a lot of interesting things that we had this fascinating taxonomy of, of dirty words that it came up with. <laughs> and it was very successful into sorting them into, you know, these are female oriented and male oriented, and these are pure insults versus things that would be used conversationally. So we were able to tease out all this kind of stuff, both because of the technique and the data source. And it, it was an interesting time in my life. I'll certainly say that. When, when was that? When were you doing that research? I was doing that probably between 95 and 2000, thereabouts. Have you been following the advancements in, in those areas? Not really, no. It's probably um, gotten way crazier. I'm sure it has. Um, no, I left graduate school for a, for a career in tech, and I never, uh, I've never really gone back and, and investigated what's happened. <sighs> Maybe that's like, that's like a Friday night uh, hole to climb down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like cyber stalking an X. You know, going back, what, what's my research lab doing these days? Yeah. <laughs> I don't do. I don't do either. You don't do. Either. <laughs> oh man. So, like, how did you go from from that computational psycholinguistics to authentication? Well, so I always did computer stuff from a, from an early age. Wound up in a psychology program for reasons we can go to into if you want, but not really relevant to your immediate question. Stocking well, the axe? No. <laughs> told you, I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> I wound up in this, this computational psycholinguistics lab. I was an undergraduate, ended my time as, as an undergraduate. They, they don't let you stay forever. And there was a new professor unpacking his lab in the basement of the psychology building, and he had all these computers and got to talking with him. Actually, an ex got to talking with him told me, clued me in, and he was setting up to do this. So I needed a few more credits. So I took, a, took some time doing research with him. And I liked what he was doing in there uh, so well that I decided this is what I want to do. And I decided I'm going to go to graduate school now, and I'm going to do this. 
so I got to working in there, and uh, you know, there are times that you come into a situation you have a different skill set than most people in that area do, and sometimes it gives you uh, a big leg up. And in this case, coming into a psychology program as somebody who really knew how to do computer programming uh, was big because that's not a really common skill there. So we were able to do a lot, uh, do, do big things, get a lot of publications, presentations, because we were able to build these uh, more elaborate simulations than you would usually uh, see. Um, so that was all fine. But again, uh, you reach the end of the road there. They don't let you stay there forever. Some people try, and the results can be pretty grim. But at some point, I needed a job. And a friend of mine knew this outfit up in Redwood City called Postini, brand new company. And he said, you know what? You need them and they need you. So give them a call. And I gave them a call. And uh, two weeks later, I was interviewing. And two weeks after that, I had moved. So picked up sticks, moved up here. Uh, they were Redwood City, so Bay Area. Worked at Postini for seven years. And I'm sure we'll talk about that some more. Postini eventually was acquired by Google. Uh, after a few years there, some of the uh, Postini principals and founders left to form Authenticate, and I uh, came along. So here I am. I'm glad you said the name because the way I was reading it in my head was Post I and I. So that that makes more sense. I thought it was like some like some you know alluding to like after initialization or something. That was just being too no, nerdy it's with an it. Email processing platform, and I guess that's ah. the Post. And as for the rest of it, I wasn't around when it was named. So what type of work did you do there? So I came in, and this is another case of walking into a situation with a sort of a different bag of tools. And that's, that's probably worth talking about right there. When we talk about how psychology grad, graduate school prepared me for a career in software engineering and then through the pathway to, to the CTO, because there's a lot of meat on that bone. But I walked into this company, which was doing email processing and primarily uh, spam and virus filtering. And the state of spam filtering at the time was, was pretty dire. The statistical models underpinning the, the detection of spam, the classification of the email were not, uh, were not very sophisticated, to say the least. And I had come out of this graduate program that was very heavy in quantitative analysis. So I came out with these, these years of working on doing uh, data classification and data analysis. And this was perfectly suited to working with anti-spam and classifying emails. Different, definitely a different spin on, on what I had learned, but the same techniques. So I pretty quickly became the anti-spam guy at Postini and uh, maintained that. And for quite a while, ran the entire anti-spam group as the company grew, eventually became the principal architect at Postini, but still with a, with a heavy foot in the anti-spam. So uh, the time at, time at Postini was pre pretty much characterized by the uh, email classification. And then, and then they got bought by Google? Bought by Google. And what did you yeah. end up doing there? Did you just run anti-spam or did you get a new role? No, I didn't do a whole lot with anti-spam at Google. There was, there was the running of the Postini properties and the integration of that into Google, and I was more focused on that. Google didn't really buy Postini for the anti-spam. There, there are different ways of approaching spam filtering. There are a lot of really competent ways to do it. And at the time that Postini was acquired, we were starting to get to the point where competent anti-spam was no longer the exception, but it was almost a commodity. There was a time when nobody really knew how to block spam, and there was a lot of work going on there. And now spam is, I think for all intents and purposes, a solved problem. You, you don't get a lot of spam in your inbox anymore. And we were sort of on the cusp of that. We had a great anti-spam engine that could block whatever, 99 plus percent of the spam. So did Google. They weren't buying us for that. What they, Google was acquiring us for was really uh, our enterprise portfolio and our enterprise experience. At the time of acquisition, Postini had a really sizable chunk of the Fortune 500 as customers. We had tons of uh, enterprise customers, banking customers. We had a lot of the bank, uh, Swiss banking system as customers. And Google was trying to push into the enterprise. I don't recall, I don't know if you recall, they had Google Apps, Google Apps for your domain. Yeah. They were trying to move from consumer email into selling these applications. They didn't have the whole Google suite yet. That was all internal, but the Google Sheets and documents, that was all starting to come out. And they wanted to be able to sell this into the enterprise. And um, I believe that one of the big reasons they bought us was because we had experience selling into the enterprise and we had enterprise customers. How much they were buying us for our Rolodex, I don't know but for our knowledge of how to deal with enterprise customers and sell them to the enterprise customers and how they like to manage their business. I think that that was what they were really after. And that's what they got. And then, so you joined, you helped migrate some properties. What did you end up like doing there? Did you stay there a long time or? I stayed for just over three years. 
And um, at that point, you know, I had a decision to make. I can stay and make a career at Google, and that's that's a fine choice. Uh, I would never look down on that. Um, and I've got no no gripe with Google. I was happy there. Um, a nice place to work. Came out of Postini. You know, we made a little bit of money on the exit. It wasn't retire now money, but it was, uh, you know, I'm safe now money, uh, a, a good cushion. And I'd taken the position, I had this sort of gut feeling at the time, this is great. Got some money in the bank. I've got a, a nice stable job at Google. You know, whew, this is, this is nice. Midway through this, or, or late in this, late in this three-year period, I was having dinner with one of the founders of Postini. And, and we were chatting about, uh, about things. And in general, you know, you have this relationship between risk and reward. The bigger risk you take, as long as it's not a crazy risk, the bigger reward you're going to get. And it seems to me that the rewards grow outsized to the risk. If you double your risk, you're probably even more than doubling your reward. In this framework, this fellow I was talking to put it to me that this is not the time to play it safe. You know, don't say, I'm, I'm good now. All I have to do is exist. He basically said, you have such an increased appetite for risk now that you should be out there, you should step away from the safe position, you should get out there and swing for the fence. And uh, as he said that, I realized, oh yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking. And this was about the time I was sort of evaluating, am I gonna stay at Google or not? And this is about the time that uh, Scott Petrie and Ramesh Rojakopal, uh, two people from, uh, one, one, one of the co-founders of Postini had left and were starting this new company and were sort of asking, hey, do you wanna come, come work with us? And so it was about that point that I decided, yeah, let's do that. Uh, my wife was still at Google, so she could hold down a lot of the stability and the, the nice benefits that you get from working there, while I could go out and pursue the high-risk, high-reward end of the thing on a new startup. So that's how that happened. And did that, was that startup Authenticate? That startup was Authenticate. So help me, help me wrap my mind around the problems you're solving here. Well, so the, the first thing that you usually talk about if you're talking about Authenticate is browser isolation. Uh, we put a browser in the cloud. You access, access that from your desktop, and it's like you're interacting with the browser. So it's a remote desktop kind of thing. We're remoting the browser. So you immediately get some isolation benefits there. And that's, the, that's the immediate surface thing you're getting is if there are any threats coming down to the browser. And the browser is you know, the, the threat vector of choice uh, generally. They're going to terminate in our isolated cloud environment, not down on the desktop. Uh, but like Postini, that's sort of the beginning that we're, we're blocking these threats. Uh, now that we sort of own the browser and the execution environment, we can put policies around it. We can say, you as, a, as an administrator get to define how you want people to interact with the browser, where you can go, where you can't go. Can you transfer data down to your local system or not? Should the clipboard work? We can pre, you can pre-provision uh, web applications and, and credentials. And then on the other side of that, you get the monitoring around it. You know, we can, we can record everything that us users are doing so that if there's a problem, you can go back and review all that. So we give the oversight, the monitoring, the control over the browsing experience. And that I think is in some ways even a bigger deal than the isolation. That's pretty cool. I was, I was, at, right. I was at RSA like a year or two ago and I saw a couple different variations of, of this. How do you guys do it? Is it, is it like on, like, is it like in like Chrome and it's like a special looking tab? Like how does it actually look? Yeah, so to me, you're right. There are a lot of variations on that and, uh, and how that's evolved is, is an interesting thing, interesting thing to talk about. How we present ourselves, uh, there are a couple options. There's the completely something off to the side. And this is how it was originally pitched. Your secure browser, you double click this, you're gonna get a secure browser. You can go and do your high value, high security things in that. And that's great for a lot of applications where you want somebody to know, I'm stepping out of my usual activities. I'm going to go do something special. Um, totally a good use case still. What we found is a lot of people don't want to do that. A lot of employers don't want to ask their employees, if you're going to go do this, use a different browser. So um, we've developed uh, in more recent years the ability to render straight into a tab in the browser. So instead of clearly launching a separate browser, we can just do per page rendering and remote that down into a browser tab. So a, a user who's not really um, paying too much attention or doesn't know what to look for might not even notice that this particular tab in the browser has been pushed off for a remote render. That's actually pretty cool because then it becomes this seamless interaction. 
it is pretty cool. So it becomes this, this transition. Uh, a transition, it's not really a move from one to the other, but it's an addition to being able to say, hey, we're a secure remote browser. Uh, more recently, we're talking about, in addition to that, we are an API for doing browser isolation. I was talking with um, the CTO of PayPal yesterday, and he was talking about payments, and he gave this example of this concept, um, like you take, a, you take a Lyft or an Uber, right? And at what point do you pay? And you, you don't, like there's not like, it's like you get the rides over and at no point are you like specifically paying, it just kind of happens. And so he was referring to some of these concepts in the payments world and like the future of payments as ambient payments. And so I was like, oh, it's kind of cool. It's like, it's, it's almost same, similar concepts like ambient browsing. It's like you're browsing, but it's not exactly on your machine and it's got all these additional security benefits. That's pretty cool. Yeah, maybe it's on your machine, maybe it's not. Uh, there's this whole set of use cases where you don't want people to know, and you don't want people to have to care either. Right? It just it kind of takes care of the, the care of itself. The administrator gets set up how they want it to be, and then the users just go about their business. So, are you happy? Did it did the risk reward pay off? <laughs> yeah, uh, that is a great question. The first part of it, yeah, I'm happy. This this is a great place to work. It's great. It's the same people I worked with at Postine. There are people I've worked with for 20 years. I work with people I went to college with, for that matter. Um, it's, it's, it's really nice. Risk reward payoff? Not yet. But it's coming. It's coming. You know, it's coming. You know, they say the, the, the best predictor, they say, I don't know if this is true, they say the best predictor of whether a startup company is going to be successful is whether the people who started it have been successful at this in the past. If that's true, we're in good shape. Um, we have been here for quite a while. Something that happened at Postini, which is relevant to this, is I got to Postini in the year 2000. And I walk in and here we are, we're doing cloud email processing. And there were two problems with this. And the first is nobody knew really what this cloud data processing was. It was kind of a new thing. So every conversation you'd have was about explaining what you're doing, justifying why it's a good idea. Uh, you know, we have policy and we filter all this stuff. And if you have like three minutes to make your impression, you've spent two and a half of it just getting to where you can talk about your product, just establishing the basis for it. And then that last bit, and you say, and companies are going to do this, and people say, no, no, no company's ever going to run their data through a cloud service. They're never going to use a cloud service. Everything's going to have to be on premise. Uh, over the, the next few years, two things changed. One is the idea of putting things through cloud services became kind of mainstream. And the second is businesses started to do it. So the conversation now was we offer a cloud service that does this thing. Great, tell me about that service. You just saved two, two and a half minutes off your conversation. And now people would, were accepting of the idea that an enterprise might put their data out in the cloud. So we spent quite a while sort of fighting this. And then the market finally, you know, we pulled the market and the market came to meet us. And finally we were in a place to really start moving. It's been a similar experience that authenticate maybe a slower burn the idea of talking about browser isolation, we spent years where the conversation is just, just explaining what browser isolation is, and that can take a while. Justify what it is, why you might want to do it remotely, how it works, and then the idea that somebody might actually buy this. And uh, we pulled, pulled the market along in our small way, and so have others, and the market awareness has also come to meet us. And now we can walk in and have a conversation, say we do browser isolation. People say, great. They might say, what's your methodology? What's your feature set? But we don't have to explain what browser isolation is and why you might want to do it. What was the question? I don't know. We're just, I forget. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. I started off on that tangent. No, um, it's oh, good. Oh, has it, has it paid off? No, it hasn't paid off. We're going to get there. We spent a long time, longer than we did at Postini, getting to where the market was finally there. And like at Postini, when the market was finally there, we landed there with a fairly mature product. And the last couple of years, things are, are, are burning good for us, uh, really picking up. So because you had the enterprise sales team at Postini, mm -hmm. is it an enterprise sales team now at Authenticate? Uh, are you asking, is it the same sales team? Oh, well, is it the same model? Like, are you going after enterprises still? Yeah, it was. Uh, when I arrived at the company, there was some thought that we were going to make our money at $10 at a time on, on swipe a credit card and, and protect your browser. Uh, I, I never really believed that, but but that's fine. I'm certainly willing to support things like that. We gave it a try. Selling to end users $10 at a time was a rough business model, and it's especially a rough support model. 
um, so much nicer to sell into an enterprise and have a single point of support and sell 100 or 500 or 1,000 seats at a time. So yeah, we're on that model, uh, enterprise sales. It was like an eight-month sales cycle. How long does it take? Yeah, it depends. It's it's shortening. Again, as the markets become more aware, we're aware of what we're doing, it's not as it's not as radical an idea. I don't actually know what the typical sales cycle is. It's not eight months for a typical enterprise. I would say uh, we do a fair bit of sales into uh, government, and that's man, that's a long sales cycle. Now that too is shortening, but but uh, those people move at a different speed. Uh, they move at the speed that they want to move at. <laughs> but that's all right, too. We can do that. Yeah, but it pays off, though, because they typically uh, don't change things. Like, they'll keep yeah. something, and once if you're in there, you're in there for a little bit. That's right. You know? harder to get in, but uh, a little more stable once you get there. Yeah, just like that risk-reward, everything kind of balances out. That's right. And it's been, it's been great to have that into the business, uh, given the, the current times. That's a, it's a stable paycheck. Do you get into any of the TED Talks? I've never really gotten into TED Talks that much. Sometimes I, I feel like maybe I should, and then I, I watch one, and I think, oh, man, no, maybe not. No, you don't like them? I, look, this, is, this might be an unpopular opinion. I often find it's okay. when, I, when I see a bit of one or I hear a bit of one on the radio, I feel like there's a little bit of a, a lot of sort of self-satisfied slugness going on in the TED Talks. Maybe I've just heard the wrong ones. Yeah, I, I'd say that like I go through phases where I'll watch some TED Talks. Um, I guess I at first when I first found the TED Talks, I was very excited because I don't watch a lot, I don't like consume that much like TV media type stuff. Like I don't watch a lot of shows or anything. So I was like, oh, this is great. And then so I like binged on them for a while and watched them. And then I was like, okay. And then I noticed that there's like the really great ones, and then there's like just you can host like local TEDx events and they kind of all get blended together. So then I just have some friends that watch the TED Talks and I just wait for like a really, really great one to to come through. And so I just kind of built a, a network of people that relay the best content to me. <laughs> That's probably exactly what I should be doing. There, there, there's too many of them. It's fire hose and a lot of them uh, like I haven't cared for, but I, I'm, I'm positive given the, the nature of them. There's some excellent ones out there. So are you a, more of an outward-facing CTO or inward-facing? Well, sort of both. And this is, this is you know, if we want to talk about how you move from sort of more engineering-centric thing to more of CTO executive position, I think a lot of that is the transition from being inward-facing to get more, more out, outward-facing. Um, so I don't go out and do publicity events very much. So that's sort of out, outward facing. You know, I don't give talks. I don't go to conferences and give presentations. I did a lot of that in graduate school, but I don't do it now. Um, outward facing, though, in the sense of going out, flying out to talk with customers, uh, being on calls with customers. I do that kind of thing. Well, I don't fly very much anymore. But I'm on calls with customers, uh, going out, doing product demonstrations or gathering requirements. We're just sitting and watching while sales does their thing. Do that all the time, uh, go to business with, with partners, work on integration. So from that point of view, uh, I'm externally facing. I'm not sure uh, which one you had in mind with the question or or if you had either in mind. No, just just kind of curious. So like, how do you spend your days today? Like what's like the average day for you? Yeah, well, I have my calendar up here and typically from probably nine to three, at least I'm pretty solidly in meetings. Outside of that, I spend, you know, I spend a lot of time talking with people, not as much as I used to again. I really miss the office, not because I love going to the office, but I get to talk to people and I get to stand in front of a whiteboard and talk about what's going on. Um, don't get to do that as much. I spend a lot of time supporting bits and pieces. Somebody's having a problem with something, somebody needs a design reviewed, somebody wants to send a communication out to a customer and wants to, to check it out. Somebody has a you know a slip sheet they want to put about put out about a product and how it works. I might, I might be reviewing those sorts of things. Um, I might get, I might catch a support case every now and then, not a personal support case, but we're having this problem. What do you think is going on? Um, keep an eye on what operations is doing, what the release cycle is there, and what sort of problems they're having. So in addition to just the, the structured meetings, you can go to the daily status on this, or that, a lot of kind of keeping an eye on things, and like what I call uh, is turning over turtles. Yeah, there's inevitably with a bunch of turtles, some are going to wind on their back, wind up on their back, and you go over and you, you turn them back over and get 
get things back going again. I've heard that before, but it's a very uh, understandable visual. Yeah, so I do that a lot uh, all, all through the day. I'll hear that little popping, popping noise of slack, and I know that uh, somewhere somebody needs me. There's a turtle on its back. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to go. I'm going to go flip it. That, that's your that should be your management book like at the like Tur- after 20 years yeah 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 or flipping yeah. turtles <laughs> my years of turtle flipper yeah so uh you've got some kids Do, have you ever gotten into like the 3d printing or any of the digital design electronics with them at all or no uh so i made sure they now have soccer mm. uh, yeah we'll, yes. we'll pick up pick up the kits that blink LEDs around and we'll sit down and pick the components and look at the resistor codes and make sure everything's in the right place and solder it together and something's not working, they'd have the meter and tap it out. Um, we'll do that kind of that kind of stuff. Done little uh, you know, electronic kits here and there, uh, million and one electronic kits and make a radio out of it kind of thing. Oh, cool. But um, never gotten a 3D printer. That's, uh, that's That seems to me that's a substantial... Uh, time and effort investment. I, I guess maybe they've gotten better. They're a little more plug and play, but at least uh, my feeling is you get one and you have to set it up and spend a lot of time uh, jiggering it around to make sure you got the right materials and you try to print something that turns into a pile of spaghetti and, and eventually <laughs> you get good at it and, and you can you can do stuff. Um, at that point, so I'm not averse to putting that kind of, of effort into learning how to do that if I had some idea of what I wanted to do with it once I got there. I don't want to do that and then sit around all day printing out stock files. Look, I made a bust of Napoleon again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have something really like I really want to make, make these machines. I need to, I need to make parts for them or something like that. Yeah. I haven't had a need for it other than like, I I've run the purchase through my head similar to how you did. And I said, okay, probably spend three grand to get like a good one. Right. And then you get it, you're going to unbox it. You're going to, fiddle with it, get, uh, print out some default models, find a good site that has good models, play with it and maybe do your name or your, something for your kid, like a little unicorn or something. And then, yeah. I, and, but I, then when I think of, um, things like quantum computing and spending some time trying to understand that for some reason, I don't know. I just really think that that is going to be an important factor in the future. It may be, um, a lot of the stuff, the 3d printing or, you understand quantum computing, uh, unless unless you have a real end goal, something like the printing or the computing, it becomes like technology for technology's sake or challenge for challenge's sake, and and that's fine, and that's that's great. And I have a lot of lot of sympathy for people who do that, and I I used to, you know, I used to do computers, computer programming for a hobby recreationally. Uh, these days, uh, setting myself challenges for the challenge's sake and, and investigating tech for tech's sake is not something that I find that appealing. I do it all day long. And when I'm done, I don't think, oh man, what am I going to do now? That might be kind of difficult. So how do you, how do you unwind? You know, I exercise at the end of the day, cook myself dinner, might read a book, watch some TV. Um, I don't really do a lot of substance. I do, I do things of substance all day long. I'm in meetings, I'm solving problems, taking care of things, creating new things. And at the end of the day, I don't have a whole lot of appetite left to do more of that. So I, I don't do a whole lot and, and it feels good. It feels good to not do, to, to be able to just say, I'm not going to do much this evening because, because I can. And someday I may get bored of that. I may decide I'm going to take up a new challenge, start doing things. But right now I'm, I'm real happy. I take them just a good chunk of downtime in the evening and then get up early the next morning and start it again. Of course, on the weekends, the kids are over and there's no time to do nothing. And that's fantastic as well. Yeah, I like I like how you describe that because you know you go through you'll go through different seasons of life and then you get to know yourself better. And it's more about what I've what I've found is that for me it's more about knowing myself and what I need right now, and then having the discipline to like give that space to myself, whether it's I'm accomplishing something very difficult or I'm taking a, a rest period because. You know, we're not designed to go 110 miles an hour all the time, right? Yeah, some people do that. Some people do it. I, I suppose I probably did that when I was younger. Like, great, been there, done that. I don't feel like uh, like I have something to prove to myself at this point, so I don't go after something just on that basis. 
but I still think you do a lot. I mean, like working out, making yourself dinner. They're just, they're activities. They're, they're still doing things. They're just not mentally stressful activities once you get them down. Yeah, that's right. I've got no appetite for additional mental stress. I mean, I'm fine with it. That's, that's the job, and I'm good with it, and I'm good at it. But I don't seek out extra drama in my life at this point. Yeah, when I, when I get done with the work day, I go home. And I've got right now I've got a one and a half year old son, Lachlan, and then the three year old baby girl, Aria. And I get like these big hugs from them. Right. And then they want to run around and want me to chase them. And I'm like, oh, I'm old. <laughs> uh, how, how old are you? Uh, I'm 32. You're not old. Jeez. But when you remember. Correct. Yeah. But when you, I can remember being like eight years old and my dad coming home and him like playing with us and being like, okay, like playing with us for like 15, 20 minutes, being like, I need to like sit down and rest. Uh, and so now I kind of get it right. Cause you just have unlimited energy when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah. And as a kid, I had no idea. My parents had all this other stuff going on. I know. Yeah, I couldn't understand it. Maybe they would just want a weekend where we weren't doing anything. Why would you want that? Oh man, I get it now. That's for sure. Yeah. You also don't realize you're poor if you're poor. Like I grew up poor, but I didn't realize it. And Actually, it was like two days ago, I was talking to my wife and I said, you know, one of my favorite things when I was a kid was my dad putting my feet on the ceiling and being like, stop walking on the ceiling. And I realized like we were poor, so we had like really low ceilings at our house. And I was like, I, I'm like, I'm about six foot. I'm like, and I'm actually like probably four or five inches taller than my dad. And I'm like, why can't I put my kid's feet on the ceiling? And I realized, oh, we must have had really small ceilings. You got them rich person ceilings now. <laughs> I think they just started building the houses differently too. Like I think they they really did. Like most of the modern houses have slightly taller ceilings. This this house is in the seventies and the eighties. You know where they had like the pits you could step down into. And, oh, the, the cripplers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a word for it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, with the shag carpeting and oh man. Yeah. So there must have been a time when you realized. Oh, I grew up. You know, and we didn't have much money. And then there must have been a time where we realized, and I'm over that now. Oh, yeah. I didn't hold on to it. If anything, like I leveraged no, it. I mean, a time where you realized, oh, and I'm not poor anymore. Now I've got some money. What, oh, yeah. What, what, what put you over that edge? Was there, was there a point where you realized, ah, I'm all right now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I was 18, I, I sold a software I'd been working on. And, uh, well, I mean, I wanted money from, from when I was... Uh, so I started programming, you know, rather around age eight, my dad would give me tasks. He was a electrical engineer, software engineer too, and uh, specialized in GPS and embedded systems. And so he would give me small programming tasks. So I got to you know, get my feet wet when I was young. And then I got hit by a car when I was about 12. Uh, and I was in a wheelchair for almost two years. And uh, so I got to come out of school and I just spent a lot of time uh, writing code and doing projects online because what was what was happening then was like the script lances and the stuff where you could write some code for a thousand bucks right and so i just do all these projects and write this code and started making money and i was like oh this is you know very useful and then my parents one day saw uh i think my paypal statement and uh they're like what are you doing like how are you generating this money because at the I didn't know then, but I knew like now as an adult, it was more money than what they were making, and so I was like, you know, I'm doing projects online, and uh, then, you know, I just kept doing that. And at the time, it was a joke that like it was actually really frustrating. I remember sitting in my vice principal's office because he's like, you know, you're not doing well in in school, and we happened to like know him because he had lived a couple streets over when I was in elementary school, and so I was in high school now, but it was that same person, a small town, right, and uh, he's like, you're not doing well, and I'm like, well, I'm just spending all my time programming and making money, and he's like, well, that's, you know, that's not like a real job type deal, and my parents, you know, even though my dad was an engineer, they were divorced, so it was like my mom and her new husband, and they were like, this is not a real thing, and uh, so I ended up going around and they, they told me, they said, if you can go show that you can get a job, like a real job, like at an office, <laughs> as we're on the Zoom call, Kevin, <laughs> like if you can go get a real job at an office, if you can go get me a letter 
saying that you know software firm would hire you, uh, then you know we'll we'll back off and you know not push you as hard with college and grades and all of that. And so I did. I went around and got three different companies to agree to hire me uh, after I was you know 18 years old because I was you know, younger at the time. And then they all backed off and they're just like, do what you want with school. They put me in a special program in school where I basically had like not much work to do. Right. And so I could spend all my time engineering, writing code and building stuff. And so that actually really positioned me well. So I would have half days at school and then I'd go to my uh, parents' real estate office and I'd sit there and I'd solve problems using code for the real estate agents. And then that's what I, a collection of tools I built over a couple of years ended up selling them. That sounds fantastic. No, I, I also uh, took half days at school. Yeah. But the school, oh, didn't, nice. but the school didn't know. The school or, didn't know. <laughs> Free technology. Actually, they, they, they knew full well. My parents didn't know it, I should say. So, yeah. You know what they, you know what was happening in, in my high school? Like, and right around that time, uh, they connected the system at, and this is pretty advanced for a school at the time, they connected a system, the attendance system at the school with the DMV. So if the kids would, if you skip too many classes, your license got suspended. Oh, right. No. Yeah. So what I did when my license got suspended was I started volunteering in the tech department. (laughs) I'll let your mind finish the rest of that one. But if you volunteer at the school's tech department, well, then your job is going around and maintaining all the computers in all the different areas of the school whenever there's a problem. And so you obviously get access to all the computers and I got my license back somehow because I guess of the attendance, I was better at attendance. Very nice. Yeah, our attendance system wasn't that complicated or that advanced, but it was it was a different age too. Um, but what it would do is you would get an automatic call in the evening if you had missed a, missed a class. And I got real good at picking up the phone on the first ring. To this there day, the sound of an actual ring phone freaks me out. <laughs> like I've got a, it's time to sprint, man. Oh, man, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I find people that they get to know who they are and what they want and what drives them. I mean, it's, I think, you know, I honestly think we expect a lot too much from school. I, I think we do. I think... I actually, one of the most interesting TED Talks I have ever seen was about the origins of school. It's like, why does school exist? And the summary of that whole talk was uh, to do like four or five basic things when the English were uh, colonizing. And so they had to be able to write to the colony, right? And they'd have to do math and they had to, you know, read, write and speak and do these basic four or five things. And so they created a school and the school would teach them to read, write, math, arithmetic, like in, in basic English. And so that way they could go colonize new places, put up a school, start educating the people, have taxes. You know, it was, it was the colonization. So the school system's origins, the roots are to do these four or five basic things, and they actually do it fantastically. Like basic mathematics, reading and writing and communication at its core level enough for society to function, the school system does that pretty well. Yeah, it does. And, and, and that's, that's all grand. Um, education becomes an interesting thing, though, when we get into the tech field. You know, obviously, I, I didn't go to school in computer science and find this, you know, find a ton of us. I'm sure you have as well. A ton of people out there who are really good at doing software did not go into computer science programs. And of course, a lot of them did. I'm by no means trying to run down the computer science programs. I just, I feel like you find so many people in this field who didn't do that and, and do just fine. I've never been entirely sure what to make of that. I think in some cases, I guess they sort of wander into it because the money's there. Well, drive and desire, curiosity. I think it's drive and desire. Yeah, like I, there was computers around me and I, you know, my dad could have given me that first programming task and I could have just been like, no, I'm going to go kick a ball around in the parking lot, you know, while he was working. But there was just something magical about, you know, me typing instructions into the computer and it returning a result. And then my mind goes, well, what else could I do? And what else could I do? And then just, it just became this like cycle of, you know, what can it do and how do these things work? And then it just, it's, it gives, if you're a creative person, it gives you an outlet to be creative in a very, very unique, structured way. I like it. 
Yeah, I was, I was kind of the same way. Uh, from a very early age, I knew I wanted to do this thing. And I, I couldn't say what it was. I was a five-year-old, no. But I had books with rockets and robots and computers in them. And I just knew that was what I wanted to do. My mother had been a computer programmer back in the early 60s. And she had uh, still rows of mainframe manuals down in the basement. And of course, it couldn't make any, any sense of them. But I knew that those somehow held the, held the knowledge. Did she do anything with NASA? No, she worked for IBM, systems analyst. She actually worked in San Francisco. You know, she, she could tell me, I can't remember. She knew there were like nine computers in the Bay Area at the time. You know, that's the way it used to be. You know, there's one in City Hall and there was one over in Moran. She knew where all the computers were. Um, strangely, interestingly, it sounds like your, your mother to some degree uh, discouraged you from this career path. Oh, well, I don't know. Yeah, a little bit. I think it was more like the relationship with her and her I, I think they were just trying to do the right thing. I think they just wanted, my brother was a doctor. So his whole thing from like, you know, I shared a room with him. And so that kid wanted to be a doctor from the day I met him. And he's a doctor and he's actually one of the best doctors in the area now. I found him online. Like I, I, I did some research. He's like one of the highest rated physicians in the, in the county. And I was like, whoa. And I sent him a text about that. And I was like, did you know this? He goes, no. I was like, oh, cool. Uh, so like he just knew exactly what he wanted to do. And, you know, my parents like, and they were doing that with me, but they were saying, I'm going to be a lawyer. And for some reason, it's not working on me. Like it was worked really well for my brother and he was getting straight A's and going right to the system. My sister, it was working really well through her. She was a little bit younger than me going through the system, getting straight A's. And, you know, the school system's really good at teaching you to follow instructions and uh, so, so they both go through these systems. My brother ends up, you know, being a great physician. My sister uh, is an educator, like physics and science. And then, you know, I ended up being entrepreneurial. Uh, so it's just, I think what, what it was with them is like kind of the frustration of the same system isn't working for the second kid. Like what's wrong mm -hmm. with these three? There's three of them and it's not working for one. Let's just kind of like crunch. And he's spending all of his time over here in the, you know, computer programming stuff. At the time, while my dad was an engineer, he wasn't like making a killing. Like I told you, we were poor. He was doing like a lot of freelance stuff. He ended up when I was about 12, 15, he ended up becoming a part of this company and early hire and it, and it ended up, you know, getting very large and going public. So he ultimately did well. But at the time, the computers were just a nerd thing. There wasn't a ton of money there. And they were just like, stop messing with that. And they would call it playing video games. They would call me programming playing video games. <laughs> yeah, I guess in, in a sense. Right? So uh, yeah, that's kind of what happened. So I think that they were just, you know, looking back on it, I think that they were just trying to do their best with the with the information they had. And they just wanted me to be successful and become the lawyer and and, and do that. And I never planned on being the, the engineer. I just really, really enjoyed it. And I was like, okay, well, the people who get to do this all the time are engineers. So that's like what I'll be. That's a familiar story. Um, I'm sure my parents could go on at length about the anguish of, of raising me. Uh, my <laughs> sister, my older sister was the straight A student who incidentally is now a physician. Oh, and, really? <laughs> um, yeah. And then I was anything but, I've already intimated that I, I wasn't the, the most studious student. And again, you know, like you say, all I wanted to do with my spare time was program computers. I wanted to do things with computers. And this, this, uh, it was a source of some friction. But uh, I guess all is probably forgiven now. Do you, do you collect or have any old technology? Yeah, I've got I got a bunch, but they all sit in the basement. I don't have them out on shelves, and I haven't I haven't for a long time. In fact, when I moved up here uh, from college, you know, I had to move quick. I abandoned a bunch of stuff, and and I regretted what I regret most bitterly is I had two nice MSI units. You know, I'm talking about the old S100, like you see in war games with all the paddle switches on them. Mm -hmm. Just gave gave them away, and I, I stopped accumulating. That was my lesson that I had accumulated too much stuff, and you have to haul this stuff around with you. So I stopped trying to like collect old computers. But I still have quite a few. I still have my old Apple II Plus. I still have my my Mac Cube. Um, I've got a Lisa down in the basement. But uh, I don't really go out and try and acquire this stuff anymore because, again, you can set yourself the challenge of maintaining and operating all these old computers. And I know I know people who do who have their whole stable of everything, and they can make them all work. 
I just, I don't have the energy to do that. And so if I buy something like that, it's just going in a box and that's not doing anybody any good. Yeah. What I haven't really collected a whole lot, but I keep having these calls with these, you know, CTOs and like in the background, they'll have like this rare technology and I'm starting to like get excited, a little bit interested and, and exploring it. Uh, but if I keep my iPhone long enough, my kids and their parents will be like, look at that relic. Down my desk, I've, I've got an iPhone, iPhone one, and it still works. There you go. But, but it's interesting. There's this, I think there's this new art to developing of what is in your background, right? It's something that wasn't a big deal until the last few months. I think it's a big deal going on is, you know, you're on video calls all day, often outside the company. And, and what are you putting behind you for people to look at? And I've seen the collection of, of, of vintage technology as well. I've seen the strategically placed uh, Peloton bike and a couple of musical instruments. And I don't, I, I don't th think these things are accidental. People are going out of their way to say, this is something I want to say about me. Um, yeah, that's what, I, that's what this whole wall is here. There are many other things. I, I can't tell what you're trying to say. Yeah, well, I've got a, a little unicorn that's saying, I was picking things out and my daughter wanted that to be in my office. And uh, I've got an ampersand because I'm a fan of Ruby and that's one of the blocks concepts and i just saw it and i was like i like blocks i like that gold ampersand so i grabbed that got some family stuff some children's books they uh got a charity and so i've done some uh written some children's books one that one right there is called the princess physicist it's a princess who gets stuck in a tower but instead of a guy coming to save her she finds a book on physics and saves herself nice yeah but is this a deliberate display like did you set that up so that people on zoom calls with you would say Wow, what a cool guy. Um yes. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't have that exact thought. What I thought was this is how it came about. So this is our second office because we outgrew our first one. And I came in here and I said, okay, well, we had, you know, kind of just the office as the background before but now i'm in like a room because we just had like a giant open room at our first office uh and so i said let's put some stuff up on the walls what would be good conversation pieces you know what are things that i'm interested in or that i like and of course you know, like books on bezos you know some different books i like simon sinek and a uh, little elephant and a little tesla model tesla car and just some things that i like and i like to look at i guess that's how i did it i was like yeah we need a background it needs to be interesting uh it needs to be fun and then we're actually considering like redoing the entire background right now uh just waiting uh, to figure out like what's going to be the office space if we're going to go to like uh, a larger warehouse type deal or if we're going to stay here we're just trying to figure out um that but yeah I don't think I, I didn't sit down. I was like, what would make me look like a cool guy? <laughs> well, as you can see, I have couches. You have couches and you got the, the windows are very nice. It, yeah. It looks like a very nice house. Very nice room. Uh, it's just my living room. You know, when this, when it was uh, early March, of course the word came down, uh, everybody go home. And uh, I guess everybody's had to set up. Some people had nice home offices, some impromptu. Uh, I literally sit now all day in, in my living room. And then in all fairness, uh, this has been this way for a couple of years because we've just done the podcast like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we have, see these chairs right here. We were doing mm -hmm. some, um, right before, I think like we set this up in like January, February, we started to do in-person stuff where people would like fly mm -hmm. in and we would set up cameras and do it in here. And then, uh, we think we we're going to do more and more of that. And then we got to use it once. <laughs> so I look forward to the far future where we can uh, start doing in-person interviews again. Yeah, it looks very good. It looks like it's all ready for a tea party. It is, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't use those words, but <laughs> if it's ready for a party. <laughs> ready for a party, all right. <laughs> uh, so what are you really excited about? Like, what's the thing that you're, that, that gets you pumped up right now in life? Uh, you know, it's, it's gonna sound like, like stereotypical or like I've, I've just made up the, the nice answer. What gets me exciting is, excited is solving customer problems, uh, finding out what problems they're having and then really designing the product to hit that. We have a lot of interesting customers with some really interesting problems and we're going new places with this and trying, trying to crack into those issues. Uh, I get excited solving their problems. I get excited 
showing our solutions. I like, I like to go do demos. I like to go do roadmap presentations. I like to hear what customers are doing. And I like delivering the products and going and give a presentation say, this is what you said you wanted and here you go. And it's even, even better than what you asked for. Yeah, you like delivering value. Yeah. I like delivering value. Well, that's what it's all about, right? That's what gets me excited too. It's like, how, where can I be useful and how can I deliver value? And because, you know, people love it when you're able to do that. When you can solve people's problems, they're like very excited about that. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what am I passionate about is the business, passionate about the business. And a lot of people will say, you know, I'm really passionate about the product and, and that that's fine. And, and that's great. I feel like you need to be passionate about the business first and the product follows. Um, if you're all about the product itself, then you're in a weird situation if the business pivots. If the climate changes, you can find yourself self out there. Um, so uh, business and then product uh, to me. And I'm, I'm really excited about the business. And then we happen to have an exciting product on top of that. So what's, what's like a common customer story or an ideal customer profile? People come and they say, hey, we're, we're having a problem with this or we need you guys for this. What is that thing? It's a variety of things. The, the most obvious one is, hey, we don't want to get uh, threats on our network. We want people to threats off our network. We're going to terminate all our web browsing sessions with you, and we're not going to have a virus anymore. Um, that's sort of meat and potatoes right there. But we have products that, that go beyond that and do what we call attribution management. And so we can do things like uh, redirect your traffic to, to other areas of the world and kind of you know, make it not obvious who you are, sort of anonymization. And where that comes in is with security research. So the bank might have an anti-fraud division or anti-money laundering. And it turns out everybody has these anti-fraud divisions. Uh, you wouldn't maybe guess it. You know, biotech company will come and they've got, they've got security researchers. Um, social media companies have security researchers. And these are, can be some really fascinating use cases of how they need to go about doing investigations and how we can support that with by putting their browser in the cloud and, and uh, you know playing games with how their traffic's being routed and things like that that's pretty so cool that, that stuff is is super cool like and cyber and security just sitting and listening to to what their problems are what's their problem statement what are they trying to do what are they trying to avoid it's just fantastic stuff and then we get to go off and, and build the products to do that and your what's your website uh, authenticate.com. That's authenticate. Here, here's the problem. One of the problems with naming businesses these days is you've got to have the domain. Yeah. And then you've got to be able to say it. And, and so many domains are taken. So you wind up with things like authenticate, which is how do you even tell somebody what the, that is? It's authentic with an H. Yeah. And then that works. That it, it kind of works, but people get it. People get it funny, but it's authentic uh, with a numeral eight at the end. That's our website. Yeah, it's definitely, I, I understand the challenge because whenever I'm picking names for things, uh, I re, I go try to tell them out loud because that's gotten me in trouble in the past where like it's clear when you can see it and then you try to go describe it and you're like, oh man, this there's too many vowels or <laughs> this word's hard to, to describe over the phone. But yeah, it's just the word authentic with the letter eight, right? That's it, that's it. Yeah, it's good. I like it, it and it's pretty, it's, it's a pretty cool looking brand too. So I think it I think it came out nice. Well, we have some we have some great uh, designers on staff. They make it, they make us look good. Yeah, I'm fairly critical of the brands. <laughs> I don't know why. I just really appreciate good design, and so when I see it, I'm like, hey, I like it. Yeah, yeah. What's what's the rest of your day look like today? Hmm. Got uh, so interest. If you're wrapping up, we can wrap up. Uh, my next big meeting is with a new hire. And, Ooh. and well, this is hard. This is a te very technical hire. He's picking up some of my development work that I've done for years. The just training up a new person into a complicated technical system was hard enough when you could be with them every day and sit in front of a whiteboard and draw boxes and circles and arrows and point and discuss and then sit down at a computer and work through things. The challenges uh, of the events of the last few months, uh, just it makes it so much harder. It's so hard to train up somebody new into something like this. Uh, it takes a lot of effort. It's hard for them. Um, so I have, like in this case, I've hired somebody. I have a standing one-hour meeting every day to, to work through this stuff. Uh, so I'll be doing that up next, and we'll be walking through the product and the directions we're taking with it and 
troubleshooting and I take him along on all my troubleshooting tips. When I got, when I got to flip a turtle on this particular <laughs> product, I, I ring him up and say, Hey, let's go. We're going we're gonna to screen share and we're going to run this problem down. We're going to fix it together. That's a good job title. Assistant turtle flipper. Yeah. I guess that <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm setting him up to be turtle flipper in chief someday. There you go. And that's a good, that's like, I like when I hear that too, because that's what it's all about, right? Like passing it on to the the next generation, solving the new problem. Yeah. And you've got to let go. And especially I think as a transition from an engineer, software developer to CTO, you've got to let go of engineering. Um, not only do you not have the time to mess with that, but it's such a cross-functional position that you have to have trust and good faith with, with everybody you can't really be seen as a creature of engineering anymore. So you got to be able to step out of that. Um, fine, my roots are there, but I can't be the, the envoy of engineering come to give you bad news. So is there, is there anything else we want to get out there to the world today? I, didn't, I don't have an agenda. I could talk about stuff all day, but uh, I know we're, we're on, a, on a schedule. I can tell humorous anecdotes of technical Give me, challenges gone yeah, bad in the okay. past. Give me one of those. Let's end with something funny. Okay, here's, here's and this, this one actually has a little bit of a moral. This is, is a story about how too much focus on the product and the purity of a product may not serve the business uh, too well. Uh, I came to Postini, and of course, we, we did anti-spam, and I got, kind of got assigned, you're doing anti-spam. And back then, uh, spam filtering wasn't that good, and so you needed a lot of knobs and dials to dial it in the way you wanted it. And so we had mainline filtering, we had category filtering. You could say I'm especially sensitive to adult content or get rich, get rich quick schemes or um, a racist spam. And I looked at this uh, and it was like the needle across the record. Yeah, racist spam. Have you ever seen a racist spam? No. no there's, there's, there's no such thing. But we had this and so in fairly short order, I, I just made it do nothing because there's nothing to catch. So by making this category do nothing. You're never gonna, gonna get a false positive and you're never gonna get a miss and everybody's happy, right? So years go by and we acquire more customers and we start to get these just trickle of reports in. People saying, hey, I got this racist email. What's with this? I have my, my filtering turned up. I would say, look at it and say, that's not spam. And they'd maybe go away and then they come back and say, hey, I got this racist email. I have my filtering turned on. And again, we'd say, that's not spam. And this went on for a while until technically we just said to support, you know, you know that knob does nothing, right? And they just about hit the roof. What do you mean it does nothing? And so there's no racist spam. And this is becoming an increasing problem with customers who are expecting uh, racist email to be filtered out even if it wasn't spam. So this was a purity of product versus utility to, to customer thing. And it was causing, it was starting to cause real friction. So eventually what we wound up doing is saying, okay, fine. This was sort of a realization by me that this product is not all, it's not about filtering spam. And what I would tell the team in the future is we're not in the business of filtering spam, we're in the business of selling spam filtering. And by going to this great purity of product, we were making the product more difficult to sell. So we ended up throwing in just a bunch of keywords. And if any of those were on spam or not, we would block it if people had this knob turned up. And that turned out to be even worse because, and, it turns out that almost every racist term you come up, almost everyone has completely legit uses elsewhere. So this turned into a false positive factory. So when the dust settled, the entirety of our racist spam filtering was an absolute block on one word. And that's all it was. And everybody was happy. There was never another complaint. I have no doubt that every time this filter activated, it was a false positive. But given the nature of the false positives, nobody ever complained. So as you can imagine, they're not going to come back and say, why didn't I get this mail? So by sort of violating the purity of the product and making it a worse spam filter, we made it a more saleable product. And the problem evaporated. So, so that, was, that was a lesson for me. And are you, are you about the product or are you about the business? And the interesting thing is, like, and what is the business but delivering value to the customers? That's right. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean you have to, you know, the customer's not always right. At some point, you, there's, there are chances to educate the customers. Our attempts to educate them on this one uh, fell on deaf ears. So we yeah. accommodated on the product end. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a highly emotional one. You know, human, it's hard enough, like just processing logic with humans. Uh, when you get into emotional areas. The yeah. rational approach did not, did not get any traction here. 
And happy ending. Everybody happy in the end. That's cool though. I like it. The whole feature came down to just like one block on one word. <laughs> one block on one word. And it's and everyone's it's happy. Everybody was happy. Never heard a thing. Never heard a thing about it anymore. I love it. Well, Kevin, this is absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate you taking some time in your schedule today to come and hang out with me, man. I'm oh, happy to do it. I had a good time. Nice. And the next time I'm out in San Francisco area or California, Northern, Southern California, I bounce around between all of those areas, by the way, because it was well, just like tech, techs, the where everyone in tech is. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, I'll let you know, stop by, say hello. Yeah. After stop all this on stuff. by, by all means. And yeah. we'll, we'll see. There may be no office to stop by, but I might be able to wave out my window. <laughs> Oh, man, that sounds good. All right. Well, until then, my friend, <laughs> see you, buddy. All right. Have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.